Good evening and welcome to another edition of RPG Coast to Coast. I'm your host, Brian from Lost Relic Industries, and our guests will introduce themselves in order of initiative. Hello, I am Anna. I'm a professional illustrator in RPGs and books. I am also the art deputy chair for the World Building Magazine. Hi, I'm Chris. I work for a nonprofit um, playing D&D with children and teaching them world building, as well as I do the podcast for the World Building Magazine. I'm Glenn, better known as Mr. Welch. I put words in order for people to pay me. Uh, I write uh, the Welcome to Mastara web, uh, uh, YouTube channel, as well as a host of others, and I'm currently trying to bring that setting back into 5th edition. My name is Dino. I am one of the admin over at the World Building Magazine server. I help run the community, and I also am the host for our podcast over there, the World Casting Podcast. All right. Uh, well, we've got some topics in the channel, and Anna, uh, would you like to pick something to get us started? Oh, interesting. I want to start us off with a topic I thought of. How did each of us get started in in tabletop RPGs? Emotional blackmail. <laughs> That's it, period. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sounds like such a positive experience. It turned out to be. Yep. Lemons, et cetera, lemonade. I. No, I, uh, seriously, I was uh, middle of the satanic panic, brought up conservative Southern Baptist. And uh, one guy said, if you, you know, before you knock it, try it. So I tried it and I <laughs> was actually quite imaginative. And then the rest became history. Nice. Um, I guess I'll share mine real quick. I have been playing video games for a very, very long time. And I just sort of, I had a friend in high school ask me if I wanted to try this thing out. I said, sure, why not? That sounds kind of like video games, which I like. Her boyfriend happened to be extremely attractive and very good at DMing. So... I married him and I play D&D with him for, uh, I have been for a very long time. Dolan. <laughs> Mine was, um, gosh, I don't know how old I was, probably like 10 years old or something like that. And um, I went over to my best friend's house and he had just been playing Boulder's Gate after it had been first released, the first one. And he, He's like, this video game is so awesome. You don't understand. Like, you got to play it. It's super great. And then also, there's another version of it that we could play at the table. And I was like, what? That doesn't make any sense. This is a video game. How do you do that? And so my first experience ever um, was, I think it was 3.0 at the time. Um, and he DM'd a one-on-one -on -one game. Both of us were just little kids. So it wasn't super, super intense or anything like that. But I played a half-orc barbarian um, who... The rest of his, like, his tribe was all full-blooded orcs, and no one liked him because he was just half-blooded. And the first thing we did was I defended the 
city from a siege or the village from a siege and i got to jump onto a battering ram and like cut people's heads off and stuff and i was like this is the greatest game in existence i could do anything and so i was just hooked after that i've got to admit i thought you were going to say you lied about being a dm to to like me or something (laughs) that was years later i had many years of experience that would have been an excellent (laughs) follow-up yeah well, the best part about being a new DM to new players is they don't know when you screw up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, that is actually really true. They don't know that you're wrong. They're actually, <laughs> in that regard, just a little bit better than actually experienced players. Well, Dino, we're waiting with bated breath. Uh, mine's not that interesting, actually. I was... Then lie. <laughs> I had just gotten home from making my first communion and my uncle gave me as a gift because we're Portuguese. So you give gifts for anything related to God. And he gave me a box set starter for third edition. uh, The one with that was very rectangle and gold with the dragon on the cover. And it was so 90s turning into the 2000s because this was the year 2000. Right when it had come out and it was just the beginning of this spiral down, I think, into deviancy and destruction that has kind of all consumed my life with nerdy things since then. And I think I probably could have been something with my life, like an alcoholic. But no, that's just where it began. I ran games for my brother and his friends, and mind you, they're all older than me, so it was a little awkward. And it just kind of began this entire cycle of me always being the DM and probably playing only ever in maybe a tenth of the games I've actually been in. And, you know, just, I guess it led a foundation for the entirety of my life. I've always played Magic, The Gathering, and D&D, and all these other things throughout my whole life. I grew up in it. It's why I call myself an old neckbeard, despite being 26. That's why I totally thought you were a neckbeard, despite you being 26. An old one, sorry. You're still a young Claire. one. I, I wish I could <laughs> beard. Oh, well. I didn't know neckbeard was like a term. Oh, dear. Yeah. Brian. Oh, yeah. Huh. I also, when I was growing up, I had an aunt that I lived with. And I didn't really talk to her about um, like Dungeons and Dragons particular. But I have a feeling that she dabbled in it, even though she was like 60 or something like that. So um, she did have this, it was a, I think a Gygax, t- like a, a board game. I can't remember the name of it, but you would just go around and you would have a character and you would go through a dungeon and you'd have to like get all of the loot. And dungeon. essentially, yeah, that, it probably was just dungeon. Yep, yep. And then just kill everybody, take their loot. And that was kind of like, all right, I remember that thing. That's kind of like this. So that was fun. Lots of introduction when I was little. Yeah, uh, Dungeon was actually an introduction for me, mainly because uh, we were in the middle of that, you know, quote unquote, satanic panic. And um, my mom was unsure you know about well i don't think i want to buy him this dungeons and dragons thing and i was looking at it in the 
in the store and I really wanted it. And, it, and they came with, and like uh, the, there was like a clear plastic bag and I could see the dice in it. And I thought, Oh, that's so neat. But my mom would spring for that. So uh, we went back to the board game aisle and then I saw this thing called dungeon and I thought, Oh, okay. You know, I was able to get her to spring for that one. And we all, I played with her and my sister. And so that was sort of like my first dungeon. Oh, my, my nephew still, I bought them a copy. It's still available for 20 bucks and my nephews play it to death. That's awesome. I love that. It's kind of, uh, I, it's actually a really good game in its simplicity, I think, because it just kind of gets to the core of, you know, instead of like focusing on the many factors of, you know, the tabletop RPGs and stuff like that, it just kind of gets to the core of the idea of moving around the board and gathering loot. Just the, you know, here, you're just a bunch of murder hobos. Go out and do your thing. Plus, it's simple, and you can play a game in 15, 20 minutes. Yeah. That's kind of how um, the kids that I played D&D with are generally around the ages of, like, 8 to 11. And that's mostly just what they want to do. Um, but they already, like, for us, obviously, we were talking about, we got introdu- introduced it from, like, some of us from video games or from actual board games. They all get like similar stuff from Minecraft, oddly enough, which I've never played Minecraft. So I don't quite understand how they make that connection, but they're like, oh, yes, this is exactly just like our game. We want our character and we were going to go kill monsters and get loot. And now we want to build stuff with it. I'm curious as a follow up, since um, I was born after Satanic Panic, but it seems like a couple of us have lived through it. Um, what kind of hurdles did you guys have? Oh, is you know, the satanic panic was pretty bad in its day. And it was like almost every, it, it was easy headlines, easy, you know, uh, I guess clickbait before they had clickbait. Is this game causing your kids to do all sorts of horrible things? People actually went to jail during the satanic panic over the, the trumped up charges. And, you know, like, so people thought we were, you know, isn't that the devil worshiping game or isn't that the, uh, you know, the, the game that caused that kid to kill himself? The, the, the guilt by yeah. association was terrible during the time. And eventually, uh, and eventually the Pat Robertson crowd finally lost their teeth because all these doom and gloom scenarios they kept promising never uh, materialized. Yeah, I'm not certain what the impact was on, you know, TSR or any of the business, but from, you know, uh, uh, from a younger person at that time, it definitely put, uh, put you in a bind because then you were, it was like, like I said, you know, you've got parents that are concerned. You know, they're tra- they're treating it like, you know, have you talked to your kids about Dungeons and Dragons? You know, um, you had, you know, they were concerned and they didn't want to have you um, getting into the material. Um, and then if if your parents were okay with that, then your friends, you know, weren't. And it was at a time when um, this sort of gaming was still very, I, I don't want to use the word underground, but it wasn't um, mainstream. 
like it is now at all. It was still a, a sort of a counterculture thing. And so you've got this sort of counterculture and then it's demonized in um, mainstream media uh, in a way that made people afraid. So it made it very hard to find friends to play with, I think. Yeah. And there were some serious changes in TSR. And they're noticeable when it goes from first to second edition. Assassins were gone. Demons and Devils became Tanari and Batazu. Uh, a lot of the uh, anything that resembled even slightly a uh, real world religion got removed. Yeah. Um, shameless plug, but Dino interviewed Phil Athens on the Worldcast podcast. So if you guys were yeah. interested in hearing more about like the actual TSR background, fascinating. Also crazy, but fascinating. Yeah, second edition was major amounts of damage control, but this was right after the, I think it was the McMasters or the McMartin uh, preschool case where they sent people to jail over this. Oh, God, yeah, that freaking horrible. So, yeah, there was, when, when they put a guy in jail for five years without a trial, uh, then people started... Uh, really changing the game because it went from just a bunch of kooks on the fringe to people, you know, getting hauled into court and, and thrown away without, you know, thrown into a uh, thrown into the jail without the key. The only, I, I still growing up, it was um, living kind of in the echo of all of that. And I only have really one instance Despite the my, I didn't live with my parents, but I had my grandparents. And despite them being like insane, them letting me play Dungeons and Dragons was weird. But I'm glad that that happened. But my mom had a roommate that, when she found out that I played, wouldn't allow me to visit her house anymore. So my mom had to meet me elsewhere if I wanted to see her. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we we became you know we were already you know on the fringes because of our, you know fantasy and science fiction wasn't a popular hobby to have back then but it really kicked us into the shadows then yeah you know it really surprises people to hear like things that are just so mainstream now like D D or even comic books never mind video games too like all of it was just on the periphery of culture and like it was the true outcast area and now it's so much more in the forefront and people just, I think, don't have the appreciation that they used to for it or for being so. Um, like, well, I mean, 20 years ago, third edition hit number one on the New York Times bestseller yeah. list. I was working a bookstore when that happened. And that was really when D&D started to turn around and got onto the forefront. Definitely helped start it. Yeah. And then it had a lull in fourth edition and then fifth edition picked back up. But fifth edition is also heavily pushed by a lot of uh, celebrity, uh, I guess, not sponsors, but unofficial spokesmen. Free advertisements. Yeah, and they are rewarding their free advertisers with some of their uh, publication choices. With like the last book that got released, or is being released, I should say. Uh, the Matt Mercer one. Yeah, I'm not taking anything away from him, but 
uh, it seems to be easier to get a book published if you are a well-known celebrity that runs D&D than a uh, little-known uh, game designer that has a lot of experience and uh, a lot of know-how on how to put together a, a setting. You only sound a little salty, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say that's well, like how it always is, though, right? Yeah. Like the popular people move markets, and you just need to go with the market because they're trying to do a business. You know, it, and also the um, a really good example I think is the Penny Arcade one that kind of just came out of left field. Yeah, uh, Acquisitions Incorporated. Yeah. People don't care about the old settings; they want new ones, and it's niche groups that played in the old settings, or it's the people who were proselytized in the the lull of fourth edition or in the days of third edition that want the old settings back and they are outnumbered one to 20. Well, the thing with the old settings is, is they're so old that they're new settings to the, the new people. So if I told you, you know, about a, a setting where you're at a war with dragons on each side and, you know, clerics have just come back and there's these new draconic, uh, you know, creatures that nobody knows what they are, but they're, you know, they're, they're magical and they're terrifying. And then you have to, run and try to get the gods to come back. He's like, that's, I'm, I'm describing Dragonlance, obviously, but for all these people that are just now getting into it, they haven't read the books. They haven't seen the, you know, the, the fact that this was a major setting. This is brand new to them and it's a new pitch. I think strongly if they would pitch some of the older settings and reimagine them slightly to modern day, they could really, uh, you know, they could really move those. One of the problems with Forgotten Realms is it's the only one getting any attention. I think well, if they give Birthright the same amount of attention, no. we'd all be playing Birthright. God bless Birthright. But <laughs> this goes into the problem with Watsi's current stance on it, is that they only want to slow burn out content. They don't want to rush out content and, and, and flood the market, which is their excuse, which I don't think it's flooding. Pathfinder did a great job of it. It took over a decade for Pathfinder to get a second edition for being having too much shit in it. Yeah, the I thing mean, is, though, like, yeah, it could be some bit of overflooding the market, but specifically with settings, especially if you're trying to revive old ones, we're in the internet age now. If you, Why would I ever buy a Forgotten Realms book or Eberron or Greyhawk or anything like that? There are such good wikis online for free with all hmm. the information. It is not good business sense to release anything of an old setting. And not to mention that it's that the one thing you'd want are monsters and monsters are the yeah. easiest thing to make in fifth edition, sadly. And I, I kind of disagree on that. I've read the monster manual. Yeah. The monster manual is really bad. That is horrible. Volo's guide or whatever it is, is better. And then everything that they put out that supplement for a campaign has a little bit of additions. The magic, the magic of the gathering planes books are horrible because Half the like the Eldrazi don't even have a freaking like unique monster. It's just oh, you use a Kraken or a Umber Hulk or like no, give me a freaking Eldrazi. I love Eldrazi so much. No, yeah. they don't even give you like oh, you want to fight Ulamog? Here's Ulamog as like a CR forty monster. Like no, you don't get that. And well, I think that's what they're missing. And well, you could potentially run old setting books as bestiaries first. So you well, have backgrounds and bestiaries in them. They they gave the you know they they promised us they were going to be opening the settings for the DM skill. I have no expectations that Mastara is ever going to see an official printing. I I don't think that Birthright is ever going to see an official printing, and probably not Spelljammer either. Though they keep hinting at that. But if they would open up the guilds, then all the older players can start creating or start buying. 
you know, there, there's certain names on titles that I immediately peek up because I know these people are better writers than some of the other designers. And that's the one thing I think they're cheating themselves on is, yeah, they're not going to open up several of the older settings, but if they let the people that want to write for it actually write for it, then it's just free money for them. And they're never going to have to look at Mistara or Birthright or maybe even Greyhawk again. They just have to sit back and collect the checks. That is true. And it would make a lot of sense. And maybe we'll see that when when fifth edition turns maybe 10, because then at that point it's kind of aged. But as it kind of stands, fifth edition is going to be here for a long time. And sadly, it's already starting to show. uh, It's starting to show a few, you know, weaknesses with some of the mechanics. Yeah. Oh, it's it's terrible. I've tried to point these out before to people and no one wants to hear it because there's such a turnover rate in players. They don't care. It's. I don't know. They people are okay with the simpl- simplicity of it, and the fact that there is not that much player choice or advocacy. They're okay with it. People have settled in, and they are rooting deep into fifth edition. And you know, you might have some people who want to change and move over back to you know OSR or Pathfinder or hell, like Genesis or something new. But you'll still have the main stalk of this plant that is tabletop RPGs being just fifth edition. Hold on, he's about to kick us into a, the next topic. <laughs> That's what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, that was an interesting pause. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that is interesting. Um, so uh, any, anything else to be said about this? It looks like we even have another topic about uh, one of the, um, this one kind of came from the audience out here. Uh, someone's asking about the Eberron setting. Well, bef- maybe before, I don't know. But I, one of the topics I had thought would be cool to talk about, which um, Glenn slightly mentioned was creating custom creatures, which I didn't mm-hmm. find difficult to do in fifth edition when I was running homebrew. You just kind of add a plus to hit and give it some AC and call it good. But then there was not much um, interesting to it other than that. Like Dinah was saying, like just use a Kraken for an Eldrazi. You're just reskinning monsters. But if you're just focusing on the story and the visuals, it's easy. I thought it was really easy to um, just make a creature. It'll be challenging, but it also looks really cool. Yeah. I mean, even with that, like, it doesn't take very much. Because, okay, so imagine a regular Dungeons & Dragons fight, right? Regardless of edition. It doesn't generally last that many rounds. To make it feel unique, you probably only need to throw in one or two things that are slightly different from whatever is in every monster manual. And I can use an example from one of my most recent games. We fought a silver dragon, and everyone knows how breath weapons work. They shoot out in a cone, right? Um, Silver dragons also have the ability to see perfectly in fog. And so just to switch it up, because everyone had surrounded it, I said, okay, well, he's going to shoot his breath weapon specifically the paralyzing like gas breath weapon at the ground on his feet and instead of in a cone it's going to come out in a radius circle around him and then it's going to linger as the fog so you're going to have a chance to get paralyzed and he's going to be able to see you and you won't see him and it's going to be like a protective area against ranged characters as well 
that immediately separated that entire fight from every other basic dragon um, that you've ever fought. And it was like, I didn't have to make up custom stats for it. It was just something I thought of like literally that round because I was like, oh, this is kind of cool and it'll like react to their um, tactics. And your players don't need to know that you like made up any of that on the spot, right? It's all the DM illusion. And that's what you can do with almost every monster to make it feel unique. And it doesn't take very much work. Oh, if you are going to be making monsters, I just threw up a link to the uh, Genius Inc. Uh, right there. That is possibly the best uh, template maker for 5th edition new monsters. Oh, cool. I use it, ex- I use it uh, heavily. It'll fill, in most of the, uh, it'll fill in most of the small details that people tend to miss. When I was running homebrew, there was one that was, um, oh gosh, never mind, scrap that. I don't remember what it was called. <laughs> Something about a kobold? I don't remember. But it was a really great encounter generator, and you could keep track of things, and it had like the monster stats and everything, which was convenient. But speaking of that dragon and how it bit one of the characters just like whole and just <laughs> left his feet behind... That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I mean. Like, I don't know. Anyone who says making monsters is difficult, I think they're putting too much work into it um, because the players aren't going to see 90% of the monster stats, so you don't really need to make them up. Um, and like you were saying, Anna, the flavor, the description, the looks, the feeling of the encounter, all of that stuff is so much more important to making it feel unique and, and interesting. Well, there's also only so yeah. much variety that you can do in a stat block, right? I mean, eventually, um, you know, one giant strong monster becomes very similar to another giant strong monster. Um, the stat block yeah. is the whole description, and it's not everything that creature can do. Like, to your point, Chris, I think, like, blowing the, the cloud at the ground is, that's in, in the spirit of, of a tabletop role-playing game, is like that's not even like breaking the rules at all that's like perfect because Mm -hmm. you're basically saying this is an intelligent creature it knows what it's doing it's not taking flight right now for whatever reason so it's decided you know to use its ability defensively and you know and aggressively um in a way that makes sense um and if you think about it from a practical standpoint that would work you don't and, and you don't have to rulify that and i think sometimes we dive really far into that and you know it just instead of stepping back and saying well what makes sense or what would make this creature really scary besides the fact that it's got umpteen hundred hit points or something yeah that was one thing that uh i kind of i I threw some shade at the monster manual but compared to second or third edition those used to talk about ecology and tactics you know, what do you expect mm-hmm. to face when you see these bad guys? Yeah. And that's something that they really have kind of lost in fifth. You, know, you, you see, you know, the, you see the, you know, the hobgoblinator or whatever. It's like, what is he going to do when, when you're going to fight him? I kind of really miss Elminster's ecologies. Yeah. There's stuff like they used to print ecologies in dragon too. Oh, um, I remember one of their, their the best ones is the ecology of the knoll one. They have this whole discussion about knolls and it just, it's, it's great. It should be checked out. 
But um, Glenn, so for your Mistara book, did you add that back in for your monsters? Because that'd be an awesome addition. Was it monsters? I wrote three. I, I uh, right after my uh, divorce because I write really good angry. I converted all <laughs> three hundred monsters over uh, to fifth edition. Not well. I mean, it was, it was they're all rough drafts, but I was able to you know get the hang of how to write all these guys. I meant um, add the ecology and tactics area from oh, second and third. I'll I'll do that when uh, I get the uh, when if they. Once I'm allowed to start writing, yeah, I fully intend to put in the tactics of each of the monsters and their motivations, their, you know, what to expect from them. Like the one I just posted up, the Cheval, it's all about protecting horses, but it's not a stand-up fight. It prefers to go, you know, gorilla or sneak, sneak, uh, if I, if I let my, if I let the cat out, the bird population in the city will plummet. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, but no, I, you know, try to explain to players how to use the monsters. Yeah, we got an owl. Oh, that's Saki. Yeah, Saki, uh, Saki likes to meow. I can hear that. <laughs> oh, I doubt her. So yeah. could you, I'm not familiar with what you're talking about, the ecologies. What is that exactly? Basically, to make a world realistic, it explains why the monster's there. What purpose does it serve in the ecosystem? Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's not just you're walking in there and you're attacked by a griffin. Why is the griffin here? Because it's there to attack you. That's not a, uh, th that's not a reason to have a monster there. Oh, I love that. There was, I, I don't remember where I was talking about it, but the benefit of random generators because I love them. Even if you are, Oh God, not Bodax. Thanks. Dino. <laughs> um, but random generators are great, especially as a jumping off point. And there was one I had that was basically like, why is this creature here? And it was just a bunch of random stuff. And some, some of it was like, this is its layer. This is like, it was healing from a wound. So I would, when I would roll something like that, I might think of like, what was the battle beforehand? Who are the survivors? And I just like um, a little like tie-ins. So it does make sense. And that sounds really cool. I have to find some of those online. Yeah. I'm just trying to find some of the monsters that uh, I was converting over. Like uh, the one that's about to pop up is the Bowden Drucker, which is a 30 foot, tall uh, elephant that hunts purple worms. So if you're playing with a Bowden Drucker, you need to have an area where you can find purple worms. And that's, you know, that, that was something that I, I pointed out that, you know, you, if you have a prey monster, you need to include, or a predator monster, you need to include the prey in that ecosystem. And because it, it adds it adds to the believability of your setting. There was a, a famous module called Quest for the Heartstone, with the toy line module, terrible module. Um, and it was an example of uh, why are these monsters here? Because they're throwing these monsters in there specifically because they're toys. So you've got hook horrors next to uh, the, these dragon creatures, next to you know these half orcs, and they have 
no relationship at all to each other, despite the fact that they're literally in the next room. And it's one of the reasons why the module isn't well regarded, because it's really hard to get into a module when the each room seems to be designed as an advertisement. I think that would have worked for me when I was like eight or nine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you, you are playing the Paladin Strongheart versus the evil War Duke. Oh, yeah. And the cleric Mercia and a bunch of other really badly named characters. The ones that they uh, made the action figures for. The same. So I, I do give props. They uh, they kept uh, Warduga lefty the entire module, which left-handers don't get a lot of representation in D and D. They really don't. <laughs> I'm not a left-hander, but I do enjoy drawing characters as left-handed people. So, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, there, there's there's War Duke right there wielding it left-handed. That outfit, oh my goodness! That outfit, tremendously <laughs> oh, yeah. 80s. Oh yeah. my goodness! I had all of these toys too. Yeah. Why? We actually, uh, I run the uh, D&D Fantasy Art page on uh, Facebook, which is a massive collection of artists, and a lot of them are uh, commercial artists, and we have a uh, fantasy art contest uh, every two weeks where they, they name a, a canon character, and everyone, or a lot of people will try to, um, uh, will, will draw the character as to do a new representation of them. And uh, War Duke got nominated once. And, uh, uh, I mean, that sounds I so fun. A dozen, dozen entries. Uh, our current one is a dragon lord. The, actually, the voting goes up tomorrow. Our, is a, our current subject is a uh, dragon lord from uh, Dark Sun. That's amazing. I just to nerd out on art real quick, but Donato um, Giancola. I think is how you say his last name, but his reimagining of like Red Sonia, I have a print of it. It's just so cool. I love, I love it so much. So if you could toss a link or invite me or something, that'd be super cool. Absolutely. Give me a second. Thanks. What were we actually talking about? Creating uh, custom characters. I mean, creating custom monsters. Creatures. Monsters, monsters. Yeah, and and how their ecologies are important to building the dungeon. I, you know, I, I felt like a lot of uh, the early dungeons like that. There's little. It it it's exactly I think kind of how Glenn described it. You would see things where people would come up with something, and it was literally just room, and then there was a monster, and room and a monster, and it just didn't doesn't make a lot of sense sometimes. Yeah, it's like goblins and bodaks living together in harmony. Right. <laughs> and you and know, where it, did the goblins come from? I mean, you know, do you get water on them? I mean, what what's that all about? So, I. You know, it reminds me of this this theme from Oblivion, um, The Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion, where every dungeon, no matter what it was, had a theme. And it could be marauders, which are just 
generic heavy armored bad guys or bandits, which are bandits, right. magical beasts, etc. And I, I don't know. It just like when I saw that, it like I know a lot of people were like weirded out by that for whatever reason. But when I saw that, I was just like, no, that's just that's how a dungeon works. Like you have to have a theme for it to be a good dungeon. And that's always how I approach things. It has to have a theme. If it doesn't, then why the hell is it a place? Why are you making it story relevant? Why are you bringing your characters here? And I think that goes a lot with the creatures that are going to be inside of it. And sometimes you do have to make things to fit or reskin other things or something of the sort in some middle ground. Yeah, but it's it's always a story about that place yeah. too. So exactly right, yeah. So you've got a theme, but that theme is also it starts to build around itself because you then you start to think about well, okay, were these the only occupants? Um, like to uh, Glenn's point, where you had the uh, purple worm hunter. You know, if if you've got a predator, you've they've got to have access to a certain. Uh, type of prey nearby well now you've got two monsters in the vicinity um and building on that history you know one of my little pet peeves it's maybe it's unrelated maybe not but in terms of like dungeon design is i would see um instead of designing a dungeon for what it was so like if you said okay well we've got something that's an old abandoned tower okay um, and, and these guys are holed up in this tower. Okay, well, these these bandits have repurposed the tower. Um, instead of drawing it as a what you would expect, maybe it's a collapsed tower, but then somebody built an extra house onto the side or built a hidden passage underneath later, and so there's now you've got layers of things. People would instead, I see this a lot, where someone takes a 8.5 by 11 piece of graph paper, and draws a series of square rooms to fill the entire piece of graph paper. And that, on the one hand, I understand it, and it was an exercise, like I did it when I was a kid, but you're, not, you're, you're starting to think in terms of like, how do I make a big dungeon instead of, what is this place really gonna look like? What does this look like? How does it function? Yeah, I, I did post up the link to the fantasy art page and I accidentally double posted the the uh, picture of uh, our last winner for the uh, character Ninny Nine Eyes from Planescape because she'd only ever been described. Nobody had actually ever drawn her. I am hype. I already joined or sub submitted a request. <laughs> is that the D&D uh, uh, &D art group? Yes, it is. Cool. Yeah, I'm in there. Okay. So the, these issues you guys are bringing up, though, I feel like it's just the, like you guys have mentioned, when you're just throwing monsters in or just trying to make a giant and fill the entire graph piece or graph paper with rooms and whatnot. Like these are just your basic um, mistakes of people who are like fresh to it or young or and things mm -hmm. like that, right? Because um, I see these kind of similar problems when I'm trying to teach the kids that I work with, like, hey, let's like start your world building. Like, how do you want to make this dungeon for the adventurers and blah, blah, blah. And there's like, so one of the easiest ways to to start to get around that, obviously, this is not going to be uh, an exhaustive list, um, but it's one that I use as a really good starting point for the kids that I tell them all the time um, is, okay, well, whenever you're making anything, like whether it's bandits in a tower or it's orcs in a cave or whatever, 
answer a couple questions. Where do they get their food? Where do they get their water? And what's their economy like? And not necessarily economy like, what does everyone have jobs like? But what are their day-to-day activities and things like this? And if you answer those, you're always going to start to flesh out the world and like understand interaction. It's like, okay, these bandits live in this tower. There's 20 of them. They don't farm. So how do they get their food? Oh, they, they rob caravans. Well, why do the caravans go down that particular road? And why isn't it patrolled? And as you start to answer these questions, it just makes more questions for you and forces you to make a more realistic and fleshed out and interactive world around whatever it is you're you're building. So if you generic, not generic, you organically make the ecology. Which is one of the reasons why um, keep on the borderlands has always been complained about because there's no way you can have that many monsters in that short, that close of an area with no physical support. They just all kill one another off or something. Yeah. But I feel like, I mean, not to, to like harp on that sort of thing. Like those are just old things when people Mm -hmm. weren't like, this was just not a field that was well fleshed out yet. And they just didn't think of them that much. So I feel like it's, less of a problem overall if you look at more modern instances of modules or adventures or anything like that um because adventures that don't take that sort of stuff into account and just hodgepodge throw things into a setting or um, an encounter or whatever like those just don't get attention because even your average reader or average player is going to be more educated on what makes a good world than they were before and they're just going to see this as like oh this is like a childish product i need something more sophisticated well, it, it, yeah, and you, you spend, like you were saying, you spend a lot of thought on it, and it does, it bubbles back up even from that micro level, right? It bubbles back up into the world because it starts to change. Um, the, one thing that, like, when I was working on um, a, a, um, a lair in our world, I realized I had this abandoned dwarf mine, and I came to the realization that I just did not like the idea that my dwarves spent... 100% of their time underground um, because I realized that to build everything that they needed underground, um, they wouldn't be able to have ale, you know, things like that. Um, so, and, and it's just little things, but now, it, now that affects their, them as a race too, in terms of how, um, and, and their ecology, in addition to, you know, the, the immediate, which was the dungeon. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of an advanced D&D tactic, but to try to make the world believable. And that's that's something that I, I will give props to 2nd uh, and 3rd edition. Uh, they did a wonderful job at that, and that's something that 5th edition really has overlooked. It's it's a tricky thing. It's I don't think uh it you know it's funny too because I don't think I've actually um when I was younger I could sit down and I could map out and draw an adventure in one night and I can't do it anymore because I find that I reach a point and then I say okay now I've got another problem to solve for and then I go to sleep on it for a while. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's um that's usually a good sign because um, you're making something feel more real and whatnot.
Yeah, because when you're at the table, you're going to, yeah, if there's anything you left out, you're basically just going to be on the spot then. You don't get days to think about it. I also, one more thing I would add is that um, I think of, uh, it's going to sound silly and childish, but I think of uh, things like where do the inhabitants dispose of their waste? Because it would come up, right? Um, so not just, you know, how they feed and clothe themselves, but, you know, like where does their trash go? Where do they, you know, go to the bathroom and all that stuff? So, yes. I don't know if it's just a pet peeve of mine, but anytime I see a published map of a castle or something and there's no bathroom, I'm like, why? Right? There's a smelly room somewhere here. Yeah. Or even just a hole in a wall. Like, there's got to be something. Let's see. Well, do we want to move on to another topic here? Or are we... Yeah, who's next? I think that's me. Yeah, let's see. What else do we have? Well, we can, we can segue into mine uh, since this seems okay. to be a follow-up topic. Is the uh, the key con- the importance of continuity in your world building? Okay, that is sadly a topic that not a lot of people uh, follow when they're building their world because it requires a lot of note taking, but. Like we got the Hobbit because Tolkien's son, who just died, kept pointing out all the continuity errors in his story. And uh, you know, if you can, if you give the players something solid, they can keep going back to whether it be a character or a location or a villain. Uh, then it it solidifies the writing in your in your campaign. It's it's very true and. The best thing that you can do, especially when trying to world build small areas like uh, towns or small cities, is giving players like an anchor NPC or like a group of NPCs that are just the anchor to this area. Like, we don't know what to do. Let's go see Elena. Like, they'll go and they'll remember and they'll ask questions. And it kind of brings them more into it than if you just set them out into it. So I find introducing them some way, usually contrived or otherwise, is the best option. Yeah, I'm a big fan of having essentially a quest giver at the beginning of anything. Because then you have that anchor person and then they don't have, they can give like maybe the preliminary quest or um, just give information. But important, I, I agree. So the tavern trope is probably still still viable. What yes. the, the problem the goblin? Yeah, meet in a t- you meet in a tavern. It you know it is a good trope, and it's a trope for a reason. Well, it's a place <laughs> where people actually meet each other. Granted, yeah. I try to we right. I usually try to start. I usually end up starting either in a jail or a brothel. <laughs> <laughs> in the the homebrew that I ran, that I'm turning into a module, it. I was just like, you know what? They, the main character or the main NPC, tells them to meet her in a tavern, <laughs> and I was like, I don't mind this at all. It makes sense. Sure. Um, other, I've I've had some other common places. Like in one uh, one campaign we played, we had a um, the library of Hot of Them had fallen into disrepair 
and uh, the player characters were able to uh, get some funding together uh, and win enough uh, favor in court to basically become sort of the new caretakers uh, of of the library. So this sort of became a home base. So if you can imagine that uh, now the PCs have a lair, which is a vast library with collection of all oddities from across the, the realms of the world and secret hidden catacombs underneath. So it was kind of cool. It gave me a place where um, I could let them, you know, if they wanted to do research or I could throw adventure hooks in, you know, by having them make a new discovery right there in their hometown that might send them off on a quest somewhere. So that was another sort of uh, weird sort of trope, you know, the mysterious shop or whatever. Yeah, and um, jumping from D&D, we played Cyberpunk one time, and I had a uh, shopkeep that uh, I did so well that it was Jaco. I remember his name. He was uh, half half Asian, half Dominican, and he actually became a, a staple in other campaigns because people liked him so much because he was relatable and he was actually kind of funny. And that's actually kind of the highest honor you can get from an NPC to have him migrate. No, that I'm is like, true. I'm okay. picturing now. Th- I'm sorry. It's <laughs> no, 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 all you. Here you go. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm picturing that scene, like in uh, what's that '80s movie, Hardware, where they come in from out of the wasteland to trade, you know, the cyborg parts. And there's this guy in the shop, and he deals in this stuff. Is it? I don't know. So that sounds like a great sort of a, uh, you know, sort of a way. You know, you're 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 a hardware dealer or something for a cyberpunk style game. Yeah, and he he was the he was the black marketeer. They had everything but guns, and he had a thick, thick uh, Caribbean accent, which killed my throat. <laughs> but I've always been good at accents. You just can't. Certain ones are terrible. Uh, Caribbean and Cajun are some of the worst to do for a long period of time. Thankfully. Yeah, I tell you, I, I grew up around uh, Kunas. I talk, I talk like this for an hour. Not as good as my Scottish. I'm damn good with my Scottish, but my Cajun, I can, I can do Cajun pretty good. We have a a player in our game that we're gonna hop to later tonight. Tried to do Cajun for a while. Ugh. It's a very difficult dialogue to uh, dialect to learn, and much harder to keep it going for a while. Because if you want to do it really good, you have to learn uh, certain Cajun phrases. And the Cajuns have, uh, the Cajun French has got a lot of different than the regular French. I had to figure out what a mehonu was for the longest. It was just a mosquito. <laughs> so I, I guess you're a fan of, of using the uh, accent stuff, Glenn. Well, yeah, I, I can pa- I've actually passed for a Scottish uh, person before. Dino Which had a great. Um, NPC he ran I don't quite know what that accent was it wasn't <laughs> it was just another language I guess but it was excellent it's it's horrible it's horrifying people don't get it but yeah it was fun well the problem is everybody likes to do dwarves as Scottish and it's, it's kind of lame but you know, when when you can talk like this for hours upon end and actually pass it from from somebody from Edinburgh, 
you know, they want you to, they expect the dwarves to be Scottish, though I tried to make all my dwarves not Scottish. Okay, so pet peeve. I don't understand why dwarves are Scottish but have Norse names. Don't get it. Uh, probably the same reason why all the pirates talk like that because somebody did a, a dwarven, uh, a Scottish dwarf one time and everybody loved it. The only reason why we think pirates go R, me, matey, is because of the guy that played Long John Silver back in the classic TV show. I guess it's just one of those aesthetics that I've always stuck to. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I try to break the aesthetic all the time. But that drives players nuts. Because the last thing you want to hear is dwarves with an Indian accent. It's. I think it's the idea of expectations in your world building. Because when you're world building, there are certain things that are like, these just focal points that are so they're not really tropes they're just ingrained practice like people know what a dwarf is they know what an elf is and they know the concept of like dark dwarves and like barbarian or outcast dwarves like those are easy to grasp but if you want to really go outside of that and even like the idea of like tolkien elves and scottish dwarves you kind of have to have a reason or else it's gonna feel weird to people because your world building will then be inconsistent with everything else in the field that they know yeah, that's why that's I'm a con, I am an iconoclast. I will always try to come up with something uh, completely mind breaking to some of these players, like making all making all my elves Cajun. You're a monster. <laughs> yeah, but when when you walk up to uh, you know, uh, uh, what was it, Elrond is like. Now you come over here. You got this ring over here. We're gonna go take the ring out of the mountain. And we're gonna throw it in the mountain, and they're all gonna everybody gonna blow up. All right, everybody got that? Let's go. Let's come on out. <laughs> I think some of what? that is good, especially just to change things for changing sake. But I mean, I don't know if I'd be able to handle an entire game with Cajun elves because, like, to me anyway, especially when it's something that's like over the top different or like comedically different. Um, it can ruin like serious feels, and if if I tried to watch Lord of the Rings and Elrond popped out like that, I'd be like, nope, I'm done with this movie. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I won't lie. I, I I started doing that because I, I I can't stand anime, but I had to be, go to an anime convention one time, and somebody told me I had to go watch this con- uh, one anime that I I finally got forced into it. Somebody had taken Battle of the Planets and redubbed it entirely with Cajun voice actors. That's amazing. Holy shit. <laughs> nice. Uh, Wait, what is Keop uh, sound like? Uh, DJ Rhett, who's a, a Cajun uh, video, uh, YouTube um, personality. What about Keop? Did he just sound the same? I, oh, which one's he? He's a little kid that just chirped. He never talked, really. Oh, no. The the one I, I don't remember a lot of. I remember the fat one spoke with such an incomprehensible accent. <laughs> it was funny. Because everybody could understand him in, in, the, uh, in the show. Oh, and like, yeah. yeah, he's like, hey, yo, fat, so tell him what we're going to do. That's right. Ain't nobody say that, but old fat, so that. And we asked him what inspired you to do this, and they just answered alcohol. <laughs> I don't know. We woke up hungover and surrounded by beer cans and a in a in a, a voice dubbing machine. We don't know what the hell happened. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm usually really careful with accents, for one, because I'm not that good at all of them. And two, if especially, well, that especially. Uh, but then also, yeah, I can throw my players a little bit. Like if 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 they start laughing, sometimes that's okay, but other times it's it's not. I mean, we have some uh, we have a setting that your Cajun elves perfectly fit into because we have a setting that's uh, Mergadim. It's this like backwater swamp. Um, there's tribal elves roaming around in the swamp, uh, and uh, you know these people basically live in the the, the only town there. Is called uh, besides the the pirate town, which is the stump, uh, is called Raven Stand, and it's basically just this shanty town built on stilts and nailed to the sides of giant trees. Um, and it's just you know the whole place sort of exudes like an overblown prehistoric you know southern uh, southeastern U.S. swamp, sort of um, just this giant cypress swamp. So. Uh, and I tried kind of going that route, but yeah, people, they find it funny, but the, the concept, if I don't dive too heavily into the accents, then I think people really sort of gravitate towards that. And it sort of makes sense to them in that setting. They can start to picture it. It's not quite the same as I think, yeah. I don't know if that was you, Dino, that mentioned earlier, like Elrond stepping out. <laughs> um, that that would be a little jarring. Yeah, I think... I think um, I was just going to say, I, I think the accents are, can be a really important part, especially for major NPCs, to help players remember them. But I think a key to it also is to not forget that there's more to an NPC than just the accent. And I've known DMs who just kind of obsess over how to talk like a character, like what they're going to do, and not really ever develop the NPC as a character. It's just as important and just as well, memorable for them to act a certain way than it is for them to have an accent. You yeah. have to have a believable response. Yes, and that's exactly. Something that a lot of, you know, the players want to have their their fun time, but you know, you got to remember the NPCs are going to respond to them acting silly or homicidal or worse. And it can be jarring too if you focus on one NPC who is from the local area and no one else has that accent because you focus so much on just this one important NPC. But then you just default um, back to your normal way of speech for whoever else you uh, interact with. But I, not to say that you have to do a voice for every single one, but at least maybe um, oh, give it a, like a soft accent, just a little bit of something. Yeah, that's why I don't like doing accents very much in general one i don't actually know if i'm very good at them but even if i was i don't know if i would want to um like there are little things you can do that make other npcs stand out more and they're not that hard like change your inflection a little bit change your posture at the table um you know speak a little lower all the time or some little things like that right but um kind of similar to the elrond thing when we were talking about I know from personal experience, one of the worst things as a DM for your players to do, you have this really important or supposed to be intimidating or serious NPC, and your players find ran something randomly funny about their name, and now that NPC is just a meme for the rest of your game, and it's never going to be taken seriously. And I feel like <laughs> stuff like that can happen way more often with accents as well, um, oh, just because yeah. it's something that you can focus on it's so much more visceral than like the content of what it's what it, someone is saying 
Um, uh, I have never done that to you. Liar! Um, there was a really great, I know Dino loves Matthew Mercer a lot, but there's an interview where they were discussing the, um, I can't remember who interviewed him, some DM celebrity, other one. And they were discussing the trope of dwarves talking with that accent and how it's not menacing sometimes, but the way that matt mercer kind of turned it around and was like you just slow your speech down and it it sounds hella intimidating when you do that and then also talus and jaffe did a really great interview with satine phoenix where they talked about npcs and like especially voice and and mannerisms and um in the chat pata our good friend pata um mentioned something about how he forgets how characters sound and um that whole episode was basically like here's how you can take really great notes and they're just like little um short but easy to remember vocal cues like slow speech stuttering speech and just give npcs just a little bit of a give the uh you can give them certain words that they're that they uh favor over other things Mm mm-hmm that's that's an easy one to do. Yeah, I and like make um, a note of that. Yeah, exactly. And you, uh, you can also summon things things you don't even need to um, necessarily make notes. I think you should, but for some of them, they're like really easy to remember, but they distinct uh, NPC very well. So, like if an a character is educated, enunciate your words properly. Use slightly bigger words. If they're uneducated, sling them together. Music contractions more often. Things like that. And above all else, steal. Steal unrepentantly from obscure TV shows or anything that uh, you can. You think you can get away with. If you see somebody that could make a great NPC in your uh, game that you don't think the other people are going to recognize because it's too obscure, mimic that person. Remember, kids, steal once and that's copyright infringement. Steal ten times and you're a hack. Steal a hundred and that's referencing. Good. <laughs> so, Good writers borrow, great writers steal. I think someone yeah, did so. ask a question about halflings. Does anybody do halfling accents here? Well, yeah, but they're all from like, you know, uh, Huffman, Texas. Awesome. <laughs> Hi, you guys around here uh, kind of, you know, you coming here to kill off our goblin problem? We appreciate that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, one was... thing I will point out with the halfling. I don't necessarily like the idea of racial accents because that doesn't really make sense. It should be regional. So if you have like a halfling race in your world, some halflings live over in the jungle with these dudes, some halflings live in the mountains with these dudes, and some are on the plains, they should probably sound different. They should sound like the people that are near them, right? Like that's how accents work. It shouldn't be all halflings have XYZ um, accent unless they all live in the same geographical location. Well, that was the old, uh, you know, the old edition were always, you know, well, every race had just like one language, you know, which is similar, you know, it's it's in a similar vein, right? Because um, you're going to have regional accents based off of regional linguistics and cultures and so on and so forth. I mean, look at the British. They almost, it, some of them have accents based on what block you live on. Yeah, and I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I still love 
one of our good friends that we've been friends with for a very long time is Australian. And I asked, how do I role play an Australian accent? Because I had an idea for a character. And his answer was, lock up a British accent for 100 years. And it's, it's funny. I always heard, granted, I dated an Australian, but I was told to be Southern British. I did, uh, you know, one thing that was just not going to work with the Scottish Dwarves. The first time my players in um, Songard, uh they were coming into the port of Hadithim, and the first time they were introduced to a dwarf, a uh, very uh, African-skinned dwarf with long dreadlocks and beads and stuff gets off the boat. Now it's just like, there's no way the Scottish accent's going to work here. Um because it just, yeah, it doesn't fit. Because he's from a different region in a different part of the world. He's he's um, he came from a southern steppe part of the world where he was adapted to that. And it just, you know, at that point, you would just lose people's disbelief. I think we do the accents sometimes because um, we identify them with, you know, our own regions, and then that allows us to sort of place them. It's sort of the same reason why Howard. Uh, when he developed his worlds, um, there were always tie-ins where you could sort of see, oh, well, Vendia, that's India. You know, there were things that were re relevant to things that we understood in our world so that they would kind of, uh, we would make connections faster. That's one of the strengths of the Mastara setting was it was mostly based on real-world cultures. And it does help. It helps immensely for new players. Did we ever get to talking about Evron like someone had asked in the chat? <laughs> uh, there's so we, still, we still have 40 minutes. Yeah. Well, did we kill this topic or did we? We've been talking about it for about 20 minutes. Yeah. All right. We, well. We've discussed this one at length. Let's see. I love accents. Yeah, when I was taking theater classes, they told you you have to work at them. Certain accent requires dozens, if not hundreds of hours to get right. And she listed off the ones that uh, were the most difficult. And yeah, despite the fact that I live near a lot of them, Cajuns are very difficult to copy. That's why a lot of people don't do it. I also really enjoy, um, there's a guy on YouTube whose name I don't remember, but if you look up um, uh, I don't know, guy examines video accents. Anyway, he, I love seeing him break down accents and where actors fail in them and how to do it better. I think that's a really great way to learn different accents. I've thrown a couple more topics out there if we want to look at some of these. Yeah, copying, copying people is a great way to learn accents. My Scottish accent, I'm actually copying a guy by the name of David McGregor, who nobody's ever heard of because he's not famous, but it was easier for me to impersonate him than just create a uh, 
an actual Scottish accent on my own. I was thinking of one Scott brought up a long time ago. I don't know if you guys want to throw in topics that are not on the list as well. No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's clearly the boss, Chris. Yeah. (laughs) I defer to Brian. (laughs) Uh, Well, I I don't know if it's safe to say yes, Chris, because, uh, yeah. No, that's fine. I'll just table See, that. You, you go ahead at, at at your own risk, because honestly, <laughs> no. So okay. Well, <laughs> what I was thinking about was um, I can't even remember the context it was brought up now during the first topic, but it made me think of um, habits and differences between new players and veteran players, um, and what. Uh, I mean, I can just say it from a DM's perspective because I don't really play that often. But what we like in new players that they have and then what what we wish they would learn quicker and then vice versa with experienced players. Because I know, like, from my experience, um, new players are often creative in a way that I really appreciate because they don't quite know the limitations. And then experienced players, while it is nice that they can like remember their um, stats and like what their character is allowed to do in a given system and whatnot, I feel like because they know the rules better, it they mentally limit themselves. And so, like an example, I've been DMing for like twelve years now at this point, and generally speaking, I play with advanced um, players or experienced players rather, um, especially because I have like a regular group for most of that. Um, but a couple of times I've had new players and one of my players who was new in a battle, he couldn't catch up to like an enemy. The enemy kept like attacking him and running away and different things like that. Um, and he was like, what do I got in my inventory that could help this situation? Oh, I have a grappling hook. Can I like make a lasso out of it and like do a trip attempt with a rain, like a throwing grapple? None of my players have ever tried to think of anything even remotely like that. Right. For this new player, he's like, I don't know what I'm not allowed to do. And this seems like it would be a cool mm-hmm. idea. Like, is there a rule for that? And so I just like made it up and went with it, right? Um, so that's like in one instance where I think there's a difference between newer and experienced players that I don't exactly know how to foster that sort of thing in experienced players. Because I can't be like, hey, be more creative. Like, that doesn't work when you just yell at people. Well, there's, there's The problem is there's a lot of different older players. There's the ones that try to push the limit. You got the ones that, but you got the ones that get static and stay. Um, when we were playing, uh, we had a bunch of uh, players playing Deadlands, and it was a brand new storyteller. And I mean, he was fresh off the boat, and he didn't realize that most of, of us playing Deadlands have been playing for ten years at least. And then, uh, so the first time we run into zombies, all the players, I get. Uh, almost slightly out of character knowledge, but they immediately knew how to put down all the zombies um, to the point of when he says, how did you, when they come into a, a railroad car and they shoot all the people that are supposed to be dead in the head before they walk into the car, they had, you know, they were all zombies and the players were like, they're just zombies. They're only zombies. That's it. Just zombies. They're not flaming zombies. They're not exploding zombies. They're not, you know, all these other horrible, horrible monsters that are in the Deadlands setting. And that was, uh, 
that was when he realized that you know older players tend to be a little bit more analytical in the, their playing style. But then you've also got the ones that like you know kind of foster the uh, the the younger players to you know to help them learn the rules and learn what's possible. Yeah, I think um, if you know there's any advice that I would give to some of those you know the the experienced players, it's um, you know don't necessarily play by the rules. You know, and by that I mean don't just look for the rule that says you know to to your point earlier you know the grappling hook. Uh, man, you know um, that's the kind of that's the kind of gameplay that you know I look for because. Um, if you think about it, if you're actually getting into your character, what is your character going to do? Your character is not going to stop and think, well, okay, I have a movement rate of this multiplied by this, which means that I can never catch this guy. Um, so programmatically, it's impossible for me to execute. None of that's going through their head, right? They just know that I'm running, can't catch up to this person, um, but I really, really want to catch him badly. Um, and I just happen to be carrying this rope and this grappling hook that's like banging me in the side as I'm running. Why am I not using it? Um, and sometimes it's easier. You're right. I think for new players. And part of that is like, I'll even describe, I think you mentioned earlier tonight, we were talking maybe even before the stream, right. Um, coming from playing uh, somebody did coming from playing video games uh, to playing RPGs. I didn't really have that advantage. But when I describe that to new players, that's one of the things is I say, you know, in this game, you're playing you know, Elder Scrolls Online or World of Warcraft, and you're, you have to do everything as it's programmed. But in this world, if you go into that tavern, you can tell me, hey, I pick up this tankard of ale and drink it and then smash the mug over the end of the counter and yell at somebody or, or I think I want to go and try and pick somebody's pocket or I just want to like carve my name into the edge of the bar, some initials or something. All of those things are doable. Um, no. and- <laughs> sorry, sorry. I, I was. You know, I- <laughs> and that's the thing that that I think a lot of people it like clicks for them. You know. I'm sorry. I'm know. from Rhode Island. No, yeah is is an affirmative. My apologies. Okay. <laughs> it just no, it's cool. cool. I was like, okay, it's not in your game. <laughs> I told you he's an asshole. <laughs> um, I I totally totally agree with that. It's such a great way to approach it especially to new players in the in this day and age because they just some people have like trouble disconnecting with how much they have to do in mm-hmm. an rpg versus how what how easy it is to do things in in games and like one of the things i state is like a combat that takes three minutes in an rpg on like the ps4 or the pc takes an hour in a tabletop it sucks but the one thing i think that i've always been able to sell people on is think of every time you've gotten frustrated in a game you couldn't climb that low wall you couldn't break open the shambles of a door you have to go all the way around or something you can do that you want to climb the wall that's like just four feet high it's like jumping and grabbing i mean i'm fat i couldn't do it but you know most people probably <laughs> could and people instantly get that they they think of things then like yeah i remember this and like fallout when there's just like half a door and it's a very hard lock it's half a fucking door i'm just gonna kick it until it's gone and they 
they latch onto it and they got it and it's doing things that a video wouldn't video game wouldn't let you do in the constraints of a video game and it brings like, them right into it like yeah. walk over the uh, hedge yeah i love um explaining to n- people who aren't familiar so since we work in this uh chris and i both work at this nonprofit, and we've all kind of tried to work D D in some form into the programming everywhere we can but that also means that people we work with who are like i don't even know what that is it takes some explaining and they there is a struggle for some people where you're like, you can do whatever you want, but what can I do? I literally anything you want, but what I don't understand. Yeah. So my problem too, or my struggle, not really problem, I guess. Um, So like someone put in the chat, like the inspiration system, you know, someone thinks creatively, give them advantage if you're in five view or give them plus two or something like that. Um, one, I don't necessarily want to incentivize people like that. Like if they're doing something that's off the wall and really difficult, I don't want to give them advantage just because they thought of it. It should still be difficult, um, <laughs> you know, so like that. Sure. But then at the same time, especially I ran into this problem a lot more with like Pathfinder and whatnot, for instance. Um, sometimes creative solutions mechanically are just not as useful as just like straight up stabbing the guy. Um, so like <laughs> I could do damage or I could do this cool maneuver, but he's probably just going to like pick up his weapon again after moving like 10 feet away. Like, why didn't I just hit him? Um, and that knowledge base ends up limiting people a lot. And it's not, I don't want to necessarily say playing unoptimally is more enjoyable, but sometimes it feels like that. <laughs> well, you know, I think, oh, sorry, you go. You go. Well, I was going to say, if you have a game mechanic that ha- that that encourages people to tend back towards the non-creative solution, um, when okay, so I'll use an example. Uh, we had a game mechanic that essentially allowed people uh, to move to get into combat, uh, but then they had used their action, and so they were unable to attack. So they essentially allowed themselves to move into a situation where they could be hit. Um, so that that's a hard mechanic. It's a game rule, whatever you want to call it. Um, the problem with that then becomes is that everybody ends up standing off outside of combat. So now you've got a mechanic that I think is is kind of formally broken in the sense that it's not encouraging people to make decisions. So we had to make some changes to that um, where people could move at certain rates and get certain advantages and disadvantages so they could decide whether they wanted to charge into the enemy or hang back. And now it suddenly became a decision. Um, But yeah, so like those other things. So yeah, I think you're spot on. Like one of the things I like to do um, is when people say, what can't I do? Or what, you know, what can't I do? Um, I tend to GM, and not everybody will, I tend to GM from the perspective of, I like for people's actions to be realistic. Um, and even if it's a fantasy setting. So we understand that magic is is magic. Uh, so if somebody says, I'm going to attempt to do something magically unaided, I, I would say, okay, so you're not going to be able to break the world's record for the longest long jump. Um, however, you might be able to come close or equal depending on what your stat is and how well you roll. I'm not going to make it any easier because you said I wanted to do that. You know, 
Um, and that's kind of where I put the limits and say, you're welcome to attempt it. But yeah, anyway, I'll let. Uh, well, then talk. you also have systems like, say, Star Wars D6, where the uh, usual response to a player is, you want to do what? Okay, roll them. Because I, you know, some of the some of the games they encourage high risk stunt. Others, you know, they they cap it. Yeah, it just becomes hard, I think, in any game with numbers. Because if there are numbers, inevitably something is going to be statistically more useful than another thing, yeah. no matter what system you're running, right? And like that's a big problem that three point five ran into at the end. The longer systems out, the more people figure it out. People figured out, oh, in three point five, it's like way better to just have five people that do or four people that do a lot of damage instead of a balanced party, and then just buy some wands and heal each other in between fights because now you've killed everybody in the first two rounds of combat, and they didn't really have a chance to fight back because you do so much damage. So it's like stuff like that is just sure. yeah. And I well too as the GM um, or as a as sort of like the the creator of whatever their challenges are, hey, you've got to change. At that point, there you've got to do some adaptation, or you just start changing the rules, right? I mean, that's when you do house rules, whatever you need to do. But um, I've got monsters that aren't like traditional D and D monsters because um to me oftentimes like the traditional fantasy rpg monsters are just you know players resolve them by burning them down you know it's just we'll just go in and do a lot of damage like you said um i have monsters that are even level one monsters that um can be uh you know if they touch you you know you you got to make a saving throw or you might become a, a a walking corpse you know um and you know if if it's something is like you just sat in the wrong place, um, now you can kind of up the ante. Obviously, you don't want to just like ambush your characters, but you can kind of up the ante on how smart they're going to be and what kinds of things they're going to encounter and change it from just a simple, um, well, you know, we you know we can defeat this with this mechanic kind of a thing. Are we talking about our favorite non-traditional fantasy enemies now? Sure. Sure. Cool. I love anything that's like super weird Cthulhu-esque, but I especially love um, enemies where in a combat situation, maybe a th like attacking or physically confronting them isn't the best idea. Um, like for instance, if a, if say a tree can possess your friends and any damage you do to the tree also does damage to your friends, then that's a hard situation. But I like that kind of a mechanic because it's a different kind of challenge. For me, it was always sending uh, bad guys against them that weren't evil, but uh, had a philosophical difference that they were trying to stop. So you couldn't exactly kill them but uh, they weren't exactly your friends either. Oh, that's interesting. So like a moral play on the... Right. Uh, we actually had a uh, almost a, a parody campaign where instead of Ravenloft, where they grabbed all the evil people, uh, these one people were stashing uh, good characters or good um, populations and good uh, you know cultures to save them from wars that were being overrun. And you ended up with 
you know, Puritans next to werebears next to all these other different uh, good communities, despite the fact that they really didn't like each other because they were just so culturally different. So when you've got, you know, you've got the, the Puritans that, uh, you know, are like, you know, the traditional, you know, everybody be nice to one another, say nice things. And their, their first culture shock comes across when they catch a werebear bathing in their fountain. You know, yes, he broke the law, he broke their law, but he's not a bad person. It still took him a week to get all the hair out of the drain. So you're kind of counting on your players not being complete murder hobos and just... Well, no, because that's, that's, <laughs> I don't like murder hobo games where they just kick, <laughs> kill everything, because that's just a combat simulator. It's very hard to re... like. Um, oh my god, what the hell is the word? When you essentially what prisons are supposed to do to you, you're a bad person, then you become a good person. Rehabilitate. Rehabilitate. It's incredibly <laughs> hard to rehabilitate murder hobos. But it can be done with a lot of blood, sweat, and you killed them, but now all that's going to happen is bad stuff. I think you use Anna's Cthulhu monsters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you do that careful, that's been kind of my thing. You have to be careful with it, though, because once you make them aware and now they understand that the dynamic has changed. And it's like what and it's a similar thing too. like what Glenn's saying is once they're keyed into their success, more or less, isn't dependent on, you know, how much damage they can put out in one round. Um, that gets people they, they hopefully start to noodle on it. You know, especially if they're invested in their character. I think um, for me, it it kind of runs somewhere in the middle between Anna and Glenn. Like, I love aberrations and Cthulian monsters. These eldritch beings are so much fun to do to do things with. But similarly, having this whole aspect that turns expectations of D and D on its head, where it's yeah, this guy's your enemy and he's the main bad guy, but you, you can't kill him. If you do, you lose. You'll be exiled or arrested or God knows what. I love worlds that are just different tones of gray and not black and white, and it's always difficult situations. Um, just po I'm posting up some art. That was one of our villains in our last campaign. And uh, she was, they didn't know she was a villain until the very end because she was using the party to get rid of other bad guys. And her, her evidence, her, her, uh, her method was good. She would get information about her rivals and various things and pass them on to the party, getting to be their friend, and paying them well. So when they, there was the big reveal that she was the person that had been replacing all the bad guys, uh, the party was kind of torn because she had paid them very well to get rid of all these other bad guys. And uh, the players didn't know what to do with her because on one hand, yeah, she killed off all the slavers and she killed off all the, you know, the, the raiders, but she took, the, she took over their roles with her own people. So did the players end up revolting or did they just go along with it? Oh, they they stopped working for her, but by the time that uh, they revealed that she was the big bad, she had amassed too much power that they couldn't get to her. 
but the areas that she, she didn't take over, the players actually made safer. She was a villain with very good public relations. That's one thing I really enjoy, like the moral ambiguity between villains. This is like slightly off topic to what I was bringing up before, but hope you don't mind. Um, but if you use um, like real world inspiration, right? There are a lot of um, areas in the world that the quote unquote bad guys or whatever, they have great public relations. Like you're saying that, you know, they donate to the poor, they give gifts out, they feed people when the government's failing them, et cetera. And this can be like super interesting of a moral dilemma for your players in any given game of like, oh God, well, like, what do we do with these bandits when like, if we try to fight them in town or confront them, all the innocent peasants like rise up to defend them. Like, how do we handle this situation? Um, and I think that can always be really interesting. Yeah, I'm running a game for Christopher that kind of it started off with, yeah, we're going to serve the empire, like that kind of a classic. Yeah, empire is great, and we've all been kind of trained to. Uh, love the empire and they do great things for everybody and then fighting banditry and then getting sucked into the banditry and realizing that the so-called bandits were working against the empire because of other things like other things that the empire was like on the hush hush like selling natives as slaves things like that and but there's still good people in the empire that are still allied to the main characters. So it's like a, it's a hard reality and you could, you can support either or depending on how your um, characters would react. Reminds me of a very old onion article about a conquered village, pleasantly surprised to find warlord, highly effective administrator. (laughs) Well, um, civilizations are complex, right? I mean, if you you guys are y'all are big into world building. I mean, like I think this is. I've got like the crew on here tonight that is really big into um, fantasy world settings, and you know, uh, that's one of the things. If you look at reality, um, you know, depending on who you are, you know, you Rome is a different thing, you know, and. Um, when, when you look at it as like a collectivist thing, you know, it's like, like TV, television, always, you know, it's like you, you watch Star Wars. Well, we know the empire's the bad guys and we know the rebels are good guys, but life is like way more complicated and people grow up in certain places and they're good people, but they're growing up inside the empire, you know? So I really like that take on it, Anna. Yeah, it's, it's fun. And a lot of personal real world um, experience and enlightenment to realize that we're all just flawed human beings and even flawed non-human beings, depending on your setting. But it's hard to look at someone and just be like, oh, that person was, you know, a dick to me and I hate them forever. But then you're like, oh, but their parents were like this and they grew up in this environment. And so the villain always there's always something behind the villain that has turned them that way and i find characters and things like that fascinating and i love hearing about people's flaws and using those to create better more diverse and then when you get a group of people that are all 
flawed and different and then it becomes a, an interesting force in whatever game you're running. Well, I think I want to use this opportunity if we don't have anything else to say on this, that maybe we can step into Yelk and do some product promotion. And then we can take some questions from folks in the audience if they have any. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Yep. No, I killed it. <laughs> you killed didn't kill it. it Anna. With I an did. axe? I was looking at the time. That's all. Sorry. Um, let's see. What was our what was our marching order anyway? Let's it would be right Dino, Glenn, Chris, then me. Okay. Right, it goes backwards. Yep, that's yeah, right. It goes backwards. So feel free to plug anything that you want to plug in there and share any links. All right. So these links are for Dino, myself, and wow, well, I just called it the third person. These are for <laughs> myself, Anna, and Chris, um, since we're all kind of actually from the same place. Um, normally, I would plug the World Building Magazine in our latest edition, but I'm going to pretend that I prepared Chris to do it. I'm going to talk about my new podcast, World Casting, which isn't really that new. It's been out for about two months now, and it is all about world building. It is not the same preach at you and tell you how to do things, and there's only one way, and your rivers have to not do this, and they can't split. Fuck that. This is just meta topics, some ideas and ways to approach them. And to remember that you're doing this for fun. So uh, it's world casting. You can check it out on Anchor. It is on just about everywhere you could listen to a podcast from iHeartRadio to Google to uh, Apple. Um, I'm I don't actually not selling anything yet. I'm trying to uh, raise attention with the wizards to uh, convince them to open up the uh, settings with middling results, but I'm still trying to get my book out. So I've got my video channel, Welcome to Mastara. Um, I've also uh, started my video channel for Welcome to Night City to cover Cyberpunk 2020, since it's going to be a while before we get 2077. And uh, other than that, uh, I'm still writing and uh, trying to get uh, you know older stuff brought up and updated to new times. Nope, I don't have any products um, on that podcast that Dino just mentioned, though. So go listen to it because we're great. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> just everyone support Chris into getting into grad school. Um, no. <laughs> dang it, Dino. Um, well, he hasn't been accepted yet. Cross your fingers. Oh. <laughs> I'll support. <laughs> Thanks. Um, for myself, um, Dino posted everything. Yeah, the so the magazine, we have the website where we have everything, list of all the past issues and upcoming issues. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. We have a Discord server that's wildly active. Um, come join us. We have fun. There's a casual voice chat Fridays. And other days. <laughs> and and spontaneously other days. Um, our next issue will be covering the arts. 
So we've got some really cool articles on designing clothing, writing. Um, my favorite, though, is the Emory Glass short stories that is going to be a continuation of those um, and some other good stuff. What are the Emory Glass short stories? It's um, She's got this world about um, there's like a big war going on, but I just really love the writing. <laughs> And they're all just like stories of war. Yes. That. And it's just, they're just really well written. And um, I, I prefer short stories because I don't have the uh, attention span for longer anymore. So that's going to be in there. She's, I think we've published her stories twice now because we just get more each, each issue. So that's going to be coming up in February. You can always subscribe to the the email list so you can just get it directly to your email. Um, for my personal stuff, I have my website, AnnaHannon.com. And I'm always looking for people to work with who need art. Um, I like to work with third-party publishers and um, anyone else who wants their art um, or their stuff turned into art. Like semi-undead horses filled with bugs. Dino. Bugs. Bugs. Oh, neat. Yeah, I'm looking at this. Thanks. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Is this is this your artwork up here? Uh, yes. Or, I don't know which okay. one. What are you talking about? The I don't website? know. I'm looking yes. at character. Yeah, looking at. Okay, yeah. cool. It's all mine. Yep. Some neat portraits and stuff in here. Oh, I see. My picture's not good enough to be on there. No. <laughs> Because I'm gonna, I'm gonna add to it because I got a critique that doesn't have enough depth. So I need to fight somebody, and then I need to edit it. I see. Well, I'm gonna do a shameless plug for myself, and then we'll move on and take some questions. Cool. Um, if y'all didn't already know, I'm Brian from Lost Relic Industries. Um, Lost Relic Industries sounds like a really big giant company, but it's not. It's me and my wife, Liz. And um, we have a basically uh, homemade, homebrew, whatever you want to call it, tabletop RPG. Uh, it's about two years old, so um, it does not have the pedigree of 5e. Um, you know, if 5e is like, you know, Led Zeppelin and, and you know, um, White Snake or all those guys, whatever, we're kind of more like the Ramones. Um, so we're just not that polished, but we're cool. Um, so the game is uh, Swords and Shaman of Songard, and it's all about this this world that was um, had some pretty high elven society, but it got smashed and torn apart by ancient evil from space, a la your Call of Cthulhu type monsters, but it's not really Call of Cthulhu monsters. Um, and now the elves are living in sort of the Stone Age, and the humans kind of running the show they're building early iron age uh, merchant civilizations and trying to 
uh, build trade routes across the world inhabited by ancient prehistoric beasts. So if any of that sounds cool to you, um, if you want to check out a world that's not fully baked, uh, but ha has a really simple system, um, check us out right in a quick start right now. And um, part of the deal is that we plan to, everything that's outlined in the Game Master's book is part of the world. Uh, we plan to build on those named areas, those areas that are on the map. Um, but then because we are small and because uh, we like to sort of build our own homebrew, that's sort of the spirit of the game, um, the blank areas on the map we're leaving blank. Um, it's kind of been our intention all along that folks at home have starting points. They have giant cities like Hotafem to start from, uh, which is sort of modeled after a prehistoric Carthage. Um, and it's a great place to start. But if you want to go outside and you want to build your own cities and you want to go to your own territories, um, there are huge swaths on the map that we're just not going to fill in for you. So that's for you if you want to build your own version of Songguard out there. Uh, anyway, that was sort of it in a nutshell. Uh, guess we can open this up for questions now. If anybody has questions, I'm going to unmute the audience. We did get one question first from okay. Mr. T just before awesome. we get voices in here. Also, why isn't Liz on this podcast? Um, I have asked her in the past, and she's just a little more. Yes. <laughs> Need more oh, ladies. Okay. So it's just I like know. how Anna won't be on my podcast. I got oh, jeez. <laughs> it's because you're an asshole. Yes, it is. But, you know, just don't spit in my face anymore. <laughs> I thought you liked it. All right. Yeah, I do see a question from Mr. T. I don't know if it's too late for questions, but with all the talk about critical roles, world being official canon, how do you guys feel about D&D &D canon? I personally, uh, like D&D's official canon going back to third edition, second edition, um, they've had some really great storylines. Um, the... I don't know, like, like, I guess it was always pretty cool in the large overarching stories and less so cool in the nitty gritty because I'm not the type of person who needs the nitty gritty. I can make that stuff up. But I guess D&D has a lot of really cool overarching stuff, especially like the Outer Plains. Um, Faerun doesn't really interest me to run a game in it, but it is cool to read stories in it, so. Yeah, I like... Um... So D&D canon specifically, so we're talking about Dungeons and Dragons. So um, I am literally sitting next to like 30 R.A. Salvatore books. Hmm. Um, I really got, I, even before I knew what D&D was, I was already reading the the Dritz set. Um, so I like, I like the lore. I like the canon when they don't, change it too much i think glenn is a fan of dreads well, me <laughs> last time we played a forgotten realms campaign the players watched him choke to death on a chicken bone before we got the uh initial uh exposition dump finished <laughs> so shameless plug about Drist. Um, the guy who edits all of our Salvatore's books, Phil Athens, who was also a line editor, who was in charge of the Forgotten Realms novelizations, was actually a guest on my podcast. It was awesome to have him on and get some background on Watsy that I never heard before. Canon That's really cool. Canon is fine, and the biggest problem goes all the way back to TSR, 
with when they want to shake up a setting or to try to try, try to draw attention to it is they nuke it and they've done it so many times in almost every setting and they forget the fact that if you change something too far from its original uh standing or its original concept you lose the thing that drew people there in the first place well it it's weird because i think um now, I came in late to the game, and by late to the game, I would say circa 1980-81, and for some folks, that, that is actually late. Um, and it it's funny, because I remember looking at the books that I had at that time, and there were lots of inconsistencies, you know, in terms of, like, what was what was the world you were playing in, particularly um, at that time, you know, you had... Um, it was a few years later, but you had the distinction between advanced and basic and what the world settings were for those. Um, and I almost had the impression um, that even though I, I didn't know, I didn't know these guys, I didn't talk to any of these guys, I was a kid, right? Um, but I, it's almost like you had the impression that they couldn't agree or that it was changing as they were writing it, what their canon was. I Maybe I'm wrong, but I think to Mr. T talking about critical role and um, Exandria with all of that stuff is its own canon. It's not just because Dungeons and Dragons published the book doesn't mean that it's part of like Faerun's canon. Yeah. So it's a it's an important distinction. But I mean, it's great people have published worlds all the time. That's what it, what it's for. That's what world building is. Yeah, it's it's kind of like how the Magic of the Gathering, the the Guildmaster book to Ravica or whatever, it takes place in the Magic of the Gathering universe, not in the D and D one, despite being a D and D hardcover. Um, but actually, to bring up your point, um, Brian, actually, I'm just shameless plug. Phil Athens, uh, he told me that back at TSR they didn't have line editors, so no one was actually in charge of the overall canon. So it was always changing, and no one had control over it. And they didn't until Watsy forced them to when they bought them in I believe it was 92 or 91 no Watsy bought in 98 98 the yeah. uh yeah 90 because 96 was the start of the start of the death spiral yes no, I'm sorry I, I believe Phil joined them in 92 um yeah. yes that, um, would, that would be why the when I was so diffuse yeah, when I was covering the Mistara setting on my channel, I actually talked to a lot of the people that were involved in that and what went wrong. And it's it's a very touchy subject with a lot of uh, the timeline is hazy because people have different memories of what happened and uh, you know who was responsible. But uh, that was one problem. Was the uh, yeah the 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 early nineties when they started nuking everything. With the, uh, the the few, they only had like I think four or five settings at that point going on out of the, the core ten, and uh, they they did the time of troubles with Forgotten Realms, which shook that up. Mistara got hit with Wrath of the Immortals, which changed everything. Greyhawk had its internal war. Ravenloft had its um, Ravenloft had the Grand Conjunction, which got the Drow out of Ravenloft and re changed up everything else. Because people were starting to lay claim to their own particular, um, their the they 
claiming their own particular setting and they didn't want to have it mixed up with other people, despite that's what TSR was trying to do with uh, Planescape after the failure of Spelljammer. Rest in peace, fucking Spelljammer. But Planescape was a good attempt to bring that in in a less insane way. But the Time of Troubles was probably the best like novel storyline that just fucked with the actual storyline of the game. Good novels, terrible modules. Yep. I think I've got a much more boring opinion on it just because I'm completely neutral to the idea of canon lore in D&D because I feel like it's irrelevant to everyone's game no matter what. Like if you are running a game in a established setting, then their canon doesn't matter because your game has immediately ruined it because you're changing it because you're adding stuff that's not written down, right? And then if you're talking about their canon in their novels, well, then at that point, you either like their fiction or you don't. So, like, what? there's not really an issue, I think, for me. I think it's important that I have a chance to fuck Dritz, so. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then at that point, it's like, who cares about the canon? You're fucking Dritz. <laughs> I, yeah, I never imagined I would actually hear that. I just, I don't know. I regret <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I literally have a painting of him on my wall. So, lad, he is clothed, though I should specify. <laughs> Fucking mad lad. Well, if you want to change that, there's forty-two thousand artists on that Facebook page. It'll be more than happy to draw. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We actually have problems with people asking, "Can somebody draw my art?" It's like, oh God, you have opened up a gate. You do not know how to close. <laughs> Prepare to have notifications for the next half a year. Yeah. Granted, I think the biggest thing when a guy came out, he wanted a uh, a group drawing of his twelve party members, and he wanted it done in one week, full color. <laughs> one person said that I will do it for twenty six hundred dollars, and he yeah, immediately sent him over half the money. Oh my oh god. My god. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna get active on this Facebook page. And, I will uh, draw oh, your no, character we... naked. I will. Yeah, no, we've got a lot of uh we actually had to uh cheat the Facebook because they have no nudity, but if you include the nudity in the uh comments, there there's they never have a problem with it. We only got our first official uh nasty gram from Facebook because somebody drew a guy uh, that was being hung. They said uh, f- suicide is not acceptable. Hmm. They didn't tell us what the art was. They said it was, you can't show this. It's like, show what? If you don't tell me what it is, I can't stop it. Oh my God. Yeah, that's that's such a weird realm because art you've got on the one hand, you don't want to censor art but on the other hand you're yeah yeah <laughs> we're we're pretty laid back but we do have yeah. a few major rules yeah. you can't you can't you got to keep it pg pg-13 yeah. at least on the opening scroll so they they crop yeah. the art put that as the the initial post and then they put the full art in the uh the first post we've never had a problem with it before yeah that's good to know i mean There's you are a great... facebook page um, Not at all a... affiliated, but the hardcover project, if you are into fighting censorship, you should check it out. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something I try to do. Uh, 
we also have to deal with flame wars constantly, especially when people bring politics into it and then say, well, yeah. it's not politics because, you know, I don't consider it politics. Well, the other people do. And we, we get some of the stupidest flame wars. Uh, somebody posted up a picture of a character that she was commissioned to draw naked and she followed all the rules, you know, just a headshot and then the uh, full art in the first comment. And we had three flame wars break out, the last which was two people arguing over the validity of ancient body hair removal. <laughs> what? I, yeah, okay. What? That's, that sounds like Look, classic Facebook. The, the, I know that the Romans must have had some form of body hair removal. Oh, so they did. We sent him, we, we sent him a thing. video of I, Claudius, where it was a major plot point. Yeah, that's... They would use some oils, which would cause the hairs to fall out, and that's how they would groom. That's how men would groom each other. They would oil uh, up to the point where the hair would pretty much just come up, come off. How long does well, that take? I don't know, but it wasn't very healthy. But it was ancient Rome. What's the right. with, with the, the lead yeah with the lead plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> got these purple splotches now, but hey, I'm more aerodynamic. Hmm. All right, yeah, are we, we ready we for deal, <laughs> We deal with we deal with uh, uh, artists uh, arguing constantly, but not not too bad. So I think uh, we'll field some questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we have any more questions out there in the audience? Well, Mr. Today? T is muted. Pata now muted himself. Jack is here as Ray Feller. He's muted. I don't know if that's all just channel stuff or if they did that on purpose. Yeah, I've unmuted everyone. Oh, great. Okay. I think we've oh, just... Oh, no, they're still, mo happy you're still muted. Oh, no, I muted myself because I didn't want to interrupt anyone. Hello. Can you guys hear me? Yes. yes. So I don't have any questions. You. Oh, I don't... I was just going to say I don't think I have any questions because... Make one that. up. What, 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 what kind of topic is the question about? <laughs> Anything. As long as it's TTRPG related. Oh, jeez. And PG-13. Um, no, it doesn't have to be PG-13. Excellent. What is the one tip you would give to every what player? What to every player? <laughs> Just to any Ritz. person playing. Not like a DM, but to like players playing the game. Like, what would be the most important thing to know? Your character the DM has the final so say. <laughs> yeah, but your character is not special. You're in a room full of people. Work with them. Yeah, I was going to say something about like the party dynamic. Don't steal from your other players. Like, Don't be a jerk. It's a cooperative game. You're trying to have fun. Even if you really think your edgelord, chaotic, evil character that's pretending to be good aligned in this party would be really cool, don't do it because you're just going to lose friends. <laughs> And don't wet yourself in public. <laughs> in a D&D &D game or just in general? Well, it's TTRPG related. So in a game store or <laughs> in a game. Yeah. <laughs> At least wait till after the session. Yeah. And secondary to not being a jerk in the group, don't work yourself up too much about the rules. I mean, the rules are nice and it's helpful to know kind of what you're doing at the table, but kind of what we talked about before. Like, there's not doesn't hurt to just ask if you can do something if you don't know how the rule is, or the DM will probably hand wave it or make it up or something. Like, 
don't be intimidated. Just play. And play Paranoia at least once. So you get used to losing your character. And you can screw over your fellow players in that game, and it's cool. Is that the board game? No, it's... uh, I completely off base. Uh, Paranoia is an old tabletop RPG. I don't remember. Who's the publisher? Uh, West End. Okay. Um, It's probably the funniest, in my opinion, it's probably the funniest tabletop RPG um, ever made, but maybe I'm wrong, um, as I frequently am. Uh, It's great. It's set in this sort of like uh, dystopian science fiction world. But because it's so dystopian, it's sort of a parody of itself. Um, uh, you, the, the player characters uh, are troubleshooters uh, attempting to solve problems for an insane artificial intelligence computer. And pretty much anything and everything you can, can do will get you in trouble. Um, but you're all trying to be good, good citizens. It's, yeah, that's sort of in a nutshell. Probably did not do it justice. There's a video I made on it. And it, I think everybody lives underground, right? Yes, because Upside is filled with communist mutant traitors. Right. I, I remember playing a paranoia yeah. game where the great reveal was that the world above was perfectly fine. That sounds about right. Was yeah. looking at it, it sounds like if like GLaDOS was telling you to be a detective. Yeah, except the person you're, you're looking in on is everyone, including yourself. Well, yeah. We had a campaign where, for whatever reason, every time somebody wanted to walk through a door, this one player wanted to walk through a door, no matter what door it was, it always led to the nuclear reactor core. <laughs> including door, you know, it wasn't the fact that there was a door to the, you know, why was there a door there that led to the nuclear reactor core? Why did the nuclear reactor core have a door in the first place? <laughs> but I mean, this is the same game where uh, they we were playing Alcon at, uh, and they had their first mission thing was they had to stop this record from skipping. And they were playing the module collect call of Cthulhu. And the record was skipping on the word Haster. So oh. about every four or five seconds, Haster showed up and ate the party. They went <laughs> like 40 clones before they finally figured out how to turn off the record player. Nice. That was also the same one where they were shot by the Death Star in self-defense. We have a good question from Mike Reborn. I didn't see that one. Uh, not. I you, normally I don't drive a Fiat though. <laughs> what role does GM Fiat play in modern games when everything seems to cover every situation? Change the rules. That's Fiat right there. I don't think you can cover every situation. I think it can seem that way um, in the rule system, uh, and I think that they tried to uh, many years ago. Um, but I like Chris. I I keep reusing your example earlier uh the dragon um that's not in the rules but it's clearly a, a a way that the gm can say this is uh this is a situation and this is how uh this creature would deal with it yeah, yeah that's what i was gonna say is there's just 
there's one, there's no way any rule system can cover every interaction, even just your table of four players is going to think of. So you're going to have to make up some stuff on the fly. But it's also handy just for rules that you don't like or don't find realistic or like just that in general you disagree with. So like the falling rules, for instance, in almost every edition, I've always hated because at a certain point, like I can fall 10,000 feet, but my character's level 13, so I'm going to survive no matter what. So like GM Fiat, you die. Sorry. Like it doesn't matter. Oh, you guys haven't played Phoenix Command because if there was something you could roll for, it was in Phoenix Command. Um, the so Pata talking about fifth edition, it is very rules light, which was really nice running the game, but because it was so light on everything, that's the creativity was just kind of dead. So I have been, and then we've we've played Pathfinder for so long where there does feel like there's a rule for every little thing. Um, but I man. What I really do enjoy just like, eh, that sounds like you would do like an athletics check or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever seems the most logical. Um, and as a DM slash GM, bending the rules is totally within your right. And when that's why I say like, if a player's arguing with you, DM has the final fucking say too bad. So sad. If, if there's like a rule that needs to be broken or bent, that's, totally up to them to do that for um, whatever the situation is calling for, for like the rule of cool or to keep the story going, you know, whatever. First rule of uh, paranoia. If the players ever figure out how the rules work, change the rules. (laughs) I was going to say, like, I think it's on like the second page of the Pathfinders GM guide. And I I know that like the rule is, is if it's not in the first five pages of actual content in a rule book, it's not a good system. If it doesn't say, you are the DM, change it how you want. Like these rules are just a yeah. guideline. And I know Pathfinder seems like it has a lot of rules and that's just because every skill has like six explanations as to how it works and every feat, there's like a thousand fucking feats and it's just, there's a lot. And I love Pathfinder because it covers a lot of ground where you can just go, oh wait, okay, here's this incredibly complex, ridiculous thing where you want to somersault, yet get thrown into doing it. And at the same time, you want to check out the value of her brooch what do I use? And <laughs> you can just kind of approximate that through the explanations of the skills. And that, that's what a good system does. It allows you to take these ridiculous, insane person, AKA player made points and just go, yes, you're going to roll sleight of hand to do that. And they're going to be pissed. I, I do enjoy it from the, so even though I really discourage arguing with your DM, it is also nice for you to be able to be like, oh, to do that, here's the rule in the book. So shut up and sit down. <laughs> I, I think that the best groups are the ones that talk because it is a cooperative storytelling game. This isn't just, I'm here to tell you my story and you're going to fucking listen. It's, let's tell a story together. You have these cool characters. I have an even cooler set of characters. Let's see how they match up. And it just kind of all kind of comes together and coalescing in through the entirety of the campaign. And at the very end of it, you kind of go, that was an entire waste of 14 weeks of my life, but whatever. Or, yeah, I'll remember this for the rest of my life. Fucking amazing game, dude. And that's about it. You want to get that. You get that by cooperating, not by fucking hating each other. 
by trying to beat each other, by trying to get one over each other because DM versus player and Gygaxian law of fun don't exist anymore. And for people who like that, they can find people who like that. But everyone else, let's just have fun. Well, I think that one fired us all up. <laughs> so, so, so now. I'm ready to go kill all of my friends yeah. in D&D tonight. Yeah. Well, that was part of, I mean, this is what one of the major things that drove us to just writing a new system to go with our world because I was tired of um, flipping through books or trying to figure something out. And I said, you know, what? all that we really need and and that's the thing to to get back to story driven um, role play, you just need something to determine outcomes when they're uncertain and and or interesting. And as long as you can own that and you have a mechanic that allows you to make that determination, um, you should be able to just rock it at the table and keep you know pushing ahead. Are you, is someone trying to speak in chat? No, not me. I'm trying okay. to stay awake. It's been a long day. I think that was me. My mic was just oh. picking up background shit. I'm not trying to talk. <laughs> That's all right. Mine is too periodically. Do we have, were there any other questions that we missed here? What are your feelings about story games versus traditional RPGs? Ooh, that's so a good one. story games as in like without dice rolling? No, narrative driven campaigns, I think, versus more traditional XP combat, three combats per three hours kind of style of game. Depends on what your players want. Yeah. Sometimes what you want. Sometimes you want sweeping epics with, you know, uh, you know, memorable NPCs and sometimes you want to kill the kick the door in, kill all the monsters and take their stuff. Oh yeah, like um so powered by the apocalypse and was Dungeon World? Is that the other one? Yeah. Oh, okay. And things like narrative dice systems like Fantasy Flight's Genesis and Edge of the Empire systems, which are a lot of fun. I think that they both have a lot of merit, and I don't think any one style of game is completely stuck to them. Like, I have these grand story-driven narrative games in Pathfinder, which totally perplexes some people on the internet because they think Pathfinder is combat and combat nothing else. And yet, I bring it into being essentially a narrative game. Whereas, I I also love the narrative dice systems and a lot of other narrative storytelling uh, games. Yeah, I we also since we've been playing Pathfinder, we're like role players first, dice kind of secondary. So we just it just works that way, but um it, we've been playing like a combination system with one of our friends that's kind of like Dungeon World, kind of not. Um and it's just it's an there's an interesting mechanic just for combat where the where he's been setting a dc for just everything so it's less about like 
the micromanaging part of combat and just uh, you just roll your dice and hope that you're beating this sometimes arbitrary single DC for the entire situation. And it even encompasses um, if you're doing like a diplomacy check, you have to beat that one DC and uh, it keeps things interesting uh, while limiting how much dice you actually have to like really focus on or how many pluses you have to focus on or things like that. What about, um, I, I know there's some system where they go kind of beyond player agency, some of the systems to where players themselves can actually uh, pull, like create situations uh, in the world sort of out of thin air. And so they begin to have more agency over the world. Um, do y'all have opinions about that type of play style or? I mean, I'm all for one for player agency. And so long as players aren't able to completely turn the narrative, I guess it doesn't really matter. But like, as long as they have input on it, that's what counts. With things like Edge of the Empire Genesis, there are mechanics where if something's going the shit, they can use this overarching story pool and use a point of it and kind of change something and get a benefit to try and get the situation to pass either without a check or with a, a boosted check. And sometimes, however, that can blow up in your face. I think the second edition, or not the second edition, the latest edition of 7th C made it so story-driven that the players couldn't actually fail. And that took out all the fun. I mean, isn't that just 5th edition, though? Like, 5th <laughs> edition's so easy, and there's oh. so many, like, hand-holding things in it that you can't fail in 5th edition. You have to either have a total mm. asshole of a GM, or you have to be really bad. I think you can, but I, I'm talking, I guess I was referring to situations where players can literally say, oh, well, yeah, but I have this point. So there's actually a slick patch on the ground right here and the enemy fumbles and, yeah. you, you know, um, and I, I was curious if other people felt like that was too much um, power for the players to have. Or if it, you know, because it's definitely a different style of play than than the old where the game master is in complete control. Right. I think so long as you state like you can use these points, but only in logical ways, like there, you can't have passed over ground and then been like, oh, wait, there's actually a giant divot there that would require me to jump over it. The like story points, like I'd said in Genesis and, and Edge of the Empire are kind are exactly actually exactly what you're trying to explain. And they work, they do, and they add a lot to the game. It's just making sure your players realize that they can't just do anything with them. There has to be logic to it. At the end of the day, you as the storyteller, yeah. chronicler, GM, DM, or whatever other term it is, you are the sole arbiter as to how this game goes. You are the impartial person trying to tell the story. And honestly, you're never impartial because you're trying to see them succeed or if you're the other side of more of a Gygaxian player, you're trying to win. Yeah, I don't. I haven't played any of those games, but just from how you guys are talking about them, I'm not sure I would want to be in them as a player. I, or at least if I was, I would never use my story points or whatever they're called in the various systems to like win at an encounter, right? So like the example is where like, oh, this dude's like slipping on something. I enjoy failure from a story 
storytelling standpoint and as a player. Um, and so I don't know. It feels it feels like I'm cheating to win, kind of in that situation. And so I don't think I would want narrative power <laughs> as a player, anyway. I mean, I definitely prefer having more control over it because it allows me to change things if I need be. Like, yeah, that's exactly how that is. You're right. As I scribble something out, it it does leave you a little bit more open as the GM, and I think it's. Um, because it's, uh, at least like I, I've used the fake core system and my experience with that was that your players do have that sort of power and it's, uh, it becomes a negotiation because it's very hard. You know, we talked about rulifying situations. It's very hard to rulify a situation. And now your mechanic is basically you're, you're allowing the player to interject, uh, something into the story. So how far do you let that go? Um, and you know, you if you and your friends get along and this is good, I think it's a really fun experience for. I had um, one of my earliest experiences with Dungeons and Dragons was me and my friends when we were kids uh, we were having sleepovers and stuff, and this we didn't have uh, with us. Uh, yay, Satanic Panic, whatever you know. And uh, a one of the one of the kids said, you know, well, what we used to do at, at summer camp um, was we played this, we played cabin D and D, is what we called it, and it was essentially uh, one person acted as the dungeon master and told the story of the setting to everybody else that wanted to participate, and all the other kids would tell them, hey, this is what we're going to do, um, and it was really cool because it got you, you know, you're sitting there looking up at the you know the ceiling or the sky whatever and you're thinking about you're imagining your character now you're not imagining um how many hit points you have or whatever um but it always sort of struck me that it was just we were always going to win because we're telling our own story the way we wanted to see it and there weren't rules that gave us that risk or that opportunity for failure so i've always been trying to find that and sorry i don't mean to like take it all away and <laughs> interject, but it's it, it's sort of an interesting parallel to have seen because in recent years it's sort of, we see this sort of story driven stuff come up, and I feel like it's sort of like one one side of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I I'm probably a weird person. Like like with movies, I enjoy those movies where you're like, oh, that was kind of like a sad slash depressing slash bad ending, right? I think those kind of stories are enjoyable. And in story-driven D&D, uh, like Anna said, I'm, I'm generally speaking DM of her games. I focus on the story as well. And that's like way more important than anything else we're doing. But, um, you know, like uh, Mike was saying, without the threat of death, there's no adventure. I don't want to play in a D&D game specifically where I know the players are going to win at the end. And I'm not like against them where I'm trying to stop them from winning. But I feel like if you want a game where you're guaranteed to win by the end, don't play with dice, just role play. <laughs> Cause then you're just telling a story, right? And you, you know how the ending is going to be. It's not quite a, like a TTRPG, but I ran a 10 candles game. Is, is it just me or someone like, like going like, huh? Is it my mic? 
Yeah, yeah, make just, yeah interoperability. Okay. Everyone was being quiet, so I was like, wait. Yes, we could, but I was going deaf. <laughs> Is it okay now? Much better. Yeah, okay. Uh, it didn't like being on Google Hangouts. Anyway, I ran a 10 Candles game, which is literally just a narrative game with a very minor dice feature to determine um, how well basically a scene will play out. So either it's in the favor of the characters or in the favor of the, the DM or GM who's running it. <sighs> Sorry. Is this okay? Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I don't want it to be like too loud or something. No, you for whatever reason your volume has doubled. Yeah. You're very good at projecting that successful DMing. <laughs> yeah. Is this better? Oh, it's perfect again. That's yeah. Really bizarre. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. I literally changed nothing. You did it. Yay. Fix your mic. I succeeded. Yay. Um, But yeah, the 10 candles system, you play scene by scene. And then whenever, like, you have to roll these dice that kind of culminate. And then um, you essentially, once you run out of dice or hit a certain number, you lose the either have won the narrative um, rights or by the time it gets to the end of the scene, you've lost them all. And then that's how the game, whoever's running the game can continue the narrative because they essentially steal the narrative from you. And that happens more often toward the end. And that's how you basically, everyone dies at the end. And so as the uh, game master progressively gains more of the narrative rights they can tell how the story goes I like that game that sounds a lot that sounds a lot like uh, Baron Munchausen if anybody ever read that old RPG I guess not I guess not Yeah, it's, it's similar in style, but you're trying you you keep passing it around as each person tries to outdo the uh, accomplishments as the, of the previous person because you're playing von Munchausen. Well, Chris and I should probably get going. Yeah, I think we're just almost at time here. This was a really good episode. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, yeah. guys. You're welcome. Thanks, yep, Glenn. Thanks for the invite. Hi, Gorm. I see you lurking. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you all uh, for coming on tonight. Um, as always, I really appreciate it, uh, and I really enjoy listening and talking with y'all. Um, I, I learned a lot from y'all. This is great. <laughs> And I hope that's the best part. Well, thanks everybody for coming and uh, join us on Casual Fridays. Over on our World Building Magazine Discord. Well, thank you guys. You have a great night. It was a pleasure being on.
Right, take care, guys. I've got a long drive ahead of me tomorrow, so I'm going to go crash and burn. Good yeah, luck. Do it in my bed, in my car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm booting Craig out. Good night, Craig. Good night, Craig.